You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to the 42 cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I am your host, Nathan, and we have an amazing episode lined up for you where I get to talk to Bill Duke. Yes, Bill Duke, the guy who has been in action movies like Commando and Predator. He was one of the first black directors in television. He's been a producer. He's in various humanitarian efforts. And he is now also an author. And most recently, for those who have been listening to the 42 cast for a while, you know that he is also Agent Odell on Black Lightning. And of course, we have talked about Black Lightning and Agent Odell in Black Lightning quite a few times. And that was one of the reasons that I began looking at Mr. Duke as, a, as someone that I would like to bring in. Somebody that I'd like to talk to for an interview. But it was really amazing because as I learned more about him, as I began researching him, I started seeing that he has a lot of really interesting stories and there's a lot of really interesting things to tell. And in a way, it was kind of disappointing that we only had 45 minutes to talk because I think we could have talked for a much longer time because there is just so much more to tell. But what I'm hoping for with this episode beyond just giving some more details and clarification behind Bill Duke and behind, you know, his role in Black Lightning and all that kind of stuff, is that it will prompt some interest in not only his current work, but also in people listening to this looking into other interviews that are available online, also uh, reading his autobiography that he has published, and that will be in the show notes. There are several things that we talk about during the interview that will be in the show notes. And learning more about Bill and about his work and checking out his other movies and all that kind of stuff. Because like I say, I did not know that much about him until I started doing the research. And he is a man of many, many interesting stories. So, uh, Bill, if you're listening to this, then again, thank you for coming on the show. And you're always welcome back here. If you ever want to do another interview, whenever you're working on your next project, if you want to say something about that, it doesn't have to be a full interview. You could just come on for a few minutes. Uh, I would definitely love to have you back on, but thank you for being generous with your time. I realize that you've been busy giving lots of interviews. I've, I've seen on social media that you have been doing a lot of podcasts and going on a lot of different shows. So I do appreciate you carving out some time for the 42 cast, and it was a great experience interviewing you. Now, before we go to the interview, though, I do want to mention for those listening to this episode who are also Black Lightning fans that there is a great Facebook group to join, and it's run by a man named Lance. I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name, but Lance apparently either is part of the CW Productions in Atlanta or has friends in the CW Productions in Atlanta. He's been able to get 
cast and crew from several different shows, including Black Lightning, Stargirl, and Titans. I think possibly Doom Patrol as well. He has Facebook groups for each of them. So he has a lot of access to behind-the-scenes information and stuff that you wouldn't normally get anywhere. So feel free to join that group. It's called Black Lightning The CW, to differentiate it from any other Black Lightning groups that might be on Facebook. Obviously, with Black Lightning ended, there isn't as much conversation as there is in some of his other groups. But there are still people posting. There are still people discovering the show. So I would still say, if you like Black Lightning, feel free to join that Facebook group and contribute to any conversations or read any conversations there because you might learn something. It's just something that I want to point out to people just because Lance's groups are very informative and if you also like the other DC shows, check those out as well. And like I say, he's posting information before other people get it and sometimes he even does web chats with some of the cast or crew and he will post those in those groups also. So feel free to go check that out. But I'm not going to go any longer on this. I'm sure everyone wants to get to the interview. So we're going to pause for a promo from another fine podcast. And then we're going to go straight into the interview with Mr. Bill Duke. Hey, everyone. This is George Tripsis, co-host from the Metal Geeks podcast, along with Carrie, the Metal Geek, and Brutal Dave. Our show is where we bring the Metal Geek culture and heavy metal culture and mash it into the geek culture. Come listen to our show where we talk about movies, comic books, Disney stuff, and mostly about movies where I'm always right and Carrie's never right. Check us out at MetalGeeks.net and catch us on all your earhole listening podcast devices. I'm Carrie the Metal Geek and I approve this message. Did you ever want it? And we're back. And like I talked about at the top of the show, with us today, we have a man that you've seen in many roles throughout the years. He's an actor, director, producer, writer, and humanitarian. But I've most recently known him as Agent Odell on Black Lightning, and that is Mr. Bill Duke. Bill, welcome to the 42 cast. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here, my friend. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And I'm asking everybody, and I have been for the last year, how are you doing in these pandemic times that we're living in? Well, they're challenging, my friend. You know, it's like you try to take care of your family, the kids in your life, and yourself. And um, uh, you do your best, you know, wearing your mask and stuff. But it's, to be honest, it's a little confusing because Dr. Fauci will say one thing, and then the CDC will say something else. And now they're coming down on Fauci, so... You're kind of on your own to a certain extent. You have to use a common sense, and but it's a, a little um, confusing. Does that make any sense? Oh yeah, that definitely makes sense. I think we're in the same boat here, and I've yeah, I've got young kids too, which makes it even more confusing slash concerning because one of them is too young to be vaccinated, and then it's like okay, 
is it okay for me to go out or can I, even though I'm vaccinated, will I bring something back that doesn't make me sick, but will make her sick? You know, so it's one of those kinds of things too, where it's like, I'm unclear exactly how things are going right now. I think we all have that issue. So we're doing our best, my friend. That's what we're doing our best. The other thing that I like to ask everybody when they come on the show is basically how they got into the vocation that they're in now. So I'm curious, did you always want to be an actor? I'll try to be as short as possible, but no. Um, I was in junior college and I was in a speech and drama class with Constance Kuhn, who was a teacher. And every year they'd do a play. And before that, you know, I had I was considered attractive or I have dyslexia, which different difficult to communicate sometimes with people. So I wrote a journal. I used to write my journal all the time and um but I got, there was a play called The Emperor Jones by Eugene O'Neill. And uh, that was happening that year. So I, the teacher said, you have, you have to be in the play. And I, so I did. And something clicked, you know, that I felt, hmm, that's, this is really interesting. I like this. Went on and told my parents, I want to be an actor. They laughed and said, you know, we appreciate your um, enthusiasm, but you're not doing that. Because at those times, only Sydney Portier, maybe one more, two more people were involved in the business mm-hmm. as actors on screen. And so I forgot it. I went. I got a scholarship to Boston University, in English in English, because I was a writer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was in my second semester of Chaucer. I don't know if you've ever read Chaucer or not but I had fallen asleep for the third time and I snored and uh, they kicked me out. So I went back to my, my place and Israel Hicks, my roommate said, you talk about this acting thing, Lori Richards, one of the first black directors on Broadway, Raising of the Sun is head of the department. You should go to audition. I said, I can't, I'm not gonna get in. He said, go try it. So I went in up there, auditioned and uh, with my Amber Jones stuff and I got in. And the next semester, and I'm glad there were no iPhones or cameras, I was dancing across a ballet floor in tights. <laughs> it wasn't a pretty thing, so please, thank you. Uh, <laughs> and so I followed Lloyd to NYU School of the Arts. Uh, he got my first job at the New Ensemble Company in those days, and then uh, he made me his assistant out here, to come out here to LA. Uh, a project called the Gold Watch was about the internment of Japanese during World War II. I was going to go back to New York. He says, no, stay here. I think there's something here for you. So I did. And uh, thank God to the great Michael Schultz, who's a friend of mine. He put me in car wash. And so it was, took off from there. So you mentioned that there weren't many people of color in the industry at the time. So were there roadblocks for you getting into acting? Yeah. I mean, you know, because if you're tall and black like me and you're not considered attractive, so there are certain roles that I would be considered for and certain roles um, that I would not be considered for. Even though I fought for them, I couldn't even consider me right for the roles. Uh, Directing-wise, um, I'll give you an example. Um, I was the first black director on Dallas. And I drive up to the gate and I roll my window down and the, the um, security guard peeks into the window and he says, who are you delivering for? And I said, what, what did you say? He said, who are you delivering for? 
I wanted to say, I'm about to deliver a can of whip ass to you. But if I had said that, I would have been the angry black man in America in, in, in Hollywood and never would have worked again. So I thought for a moment and I said, I, um, what I am delivering is my talents as the first black director on Dallas, please open the gate. The most rewarding thing was the look on his face. But he opened the gate and he let me in. So, you know, there were battles. I once saw an interview with you where you had mentioned that people measure the security versus their happiness when they're picking what they're going to do with their life. And that most people go with security and then they end up in jobs that they hate because they want that security of pay and being able to retire and all that kind of stuff. So I'm kind of curious because obviously you're someone who went with, I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to go for acting. Why did you take the risk? Well, many of my family members, uh, when I grew up, had two and three jobs. Mm. And um, they died too young because of the frustration, their, you know, whatever. But I didn't want to, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. And I was encouraged by friends to follow my dream and that, you know, I was taught by my family to be pragmatic because they came up in the South. They saw lynchings. They saw, they call nigger barbecues. They said, be a pragmatist, just make a living, feed your family. And there's nothing wrong with that because if you have children, you should take care of them. But I never had my own children because I'm in a business that's a roller coaster. You're working and then you don't work and then you work and then you don't work, but the bills don't stop. So, um, you know, it was, it's about living your dream. You know, it, it's, 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 it's hard. I'm not going to lie to you. There are many times, you know, it's a business of rejection and people tell you to get over it, but you don't. And that pain is within you, your mind, your body, and your spirit. And so for how I dealt with my pain in the beginning, was drugs and alcohol. But that deals with the symptoms, not the cause. Uh, I was lucky enough to find transcendental meditation. And I've been meditating for many, many years. It saved my life from the drugs and alcohol, but it's not an easy journey. Does that make any sense at all? It's just... Oh, yeah. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. You've got to find something that sort of goes beyond just making it go away temporarily. You got to deal with the cause, not the symptoms, you know? Mm -hmm. So with how you've been in the industry for a while, is there a role that you feel like, oh man, that's the one that got away. I would have nailed that role. Oh, well, you know, I, I always admired Denzel, but I always wish I had some of the roles he got. You know? mm -hmm. He was a soldier that got beaten in the back, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's like, it's like some, some great roles, you know, but the people who got them were great in them and it wasn't meant for me, but I was, I've been fortunate enough to have good roles as a director and actor. And uh, so I, I'm appreciative and grateful for the career I've had and have, because I'm still working, thank God, at my age. But um, it's, it's, I tell young people who get into this business, you know, a lot of them focus on the show part. 
but it's called business, show business. And they have to understand the discipline, the craft you have to have, the endurance, persistence, the self-belief, um, the faith in yourself, because you're going to be ejected and everything. So it's, it's a, they had to be prepared for it. And, and, and many times they don't want to hear what you have to say. And so they end up not in good places, but all you can do is try to tell them what you've been through, what you've learned and get back. Like you mentioned, in the early 80s, you also stepped behind the camera and started directing as well as acting. What made you decide that something that you wanted to do was be on the other side of the camera? Well, I was on a show called um, Palmerstown USA for two seasons. And um, after I went off the air, I didn't work for two years. Mm. And I was always, you know, I was a stage director. I, direct, I wrote my own plays, directed my own plays in New York, and some here in L.A. too. But the equipment of the camera, the, the, the crew, the staff, the magnitude, and the, I was just intimidated by it all. And, uh, but when I didn't work for two years, I said, you know something, I better get over this. So I, I applied for the American Film Institute under Tony Vellani at the time, and I fortunately got in. And it's one of the greatest place, the places to be if you want to be a director producer or writer, AFI is, in those days, it was the best. And I learned a lot. It was not easy uh, because they're really strict and hard. But if you get through there, you know what you're doing because they teach you the craft. And so that's how I got into directing. And uh, I directed my own short called The Hero and shopped it around to every single studio and network of my agency said, no, no, no. We can't give you the first job. We'll give you your second job. And I was depressed. I went away to a meditation retreat, get myself back together. My agent calls me and says, hey, Bill, um, David Jacobs over at Knox Landing wants you to come over and uh, interview you interview for possibly an episode. So I, what? I came back in a rush and got into his office on Monday morning, and the meeting lasted like five minutes. I went back to my agent. I said, what the hell was that about? You know, this is, Steph, why did he do that? He doesn't he's not interested. That following Monday, I got a call from my agent, and they said that David Jacobs wants you to direct an episode of Knox Landing. I called everybody I knew. I bragged. I was so happy. And I was in pre-production for seven days. And my last day of pre-production, um, Joe Wallenstein, the producer, comes up and says, Hey, Bill, great pre-production. Well, we knew you were going to be good, man, from your reel. I said, what reel? He said, well, the reel from your other shows. I said, I just got an AFI. And he said, well, wait, wait a minute. He goes in David Jacobs' office. David Jacobs had mixed my box up with somebody else's. That's how I got my first job as a director. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Is that amazing? Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> you're, you're a long career because of an accident. That's awesome. Well, God got a sense of humor for that one. But yeah, not content to be both an actor and a director. In the late 90s, you also started producing. So why did you decide that that was the time to add another job to your portfolio? Well, there were stories that I wanted to tell that weren't being told, and particularly with documentaries. Uh, they're such a powerful tool. You know, you're able to, you know, 
deal with t subject matter that you can't do in feature films or TV, but you can really get into them in terms of documentary. So I really wanted to get into that. And so I began to really explore the craft of the documentaries and work with some great people who helped me understand the craft and started producing my own stuff. And you're also a writer, as you mentioned, that you used to journal and, and write in your journal often, and you've written some books. So what does writing do that creatively that you can't get from acting, directing, et cetera? Well, writing is, um, it, it's, it's a challenging discipline. Uh, writing your, uh, for example, I wrote my autobiography, Bill Duke, uh, 40 years in front of the in front of and behind the camera. Um, it's easy to, not easy, but you know, talking about your career is one thing. But talking about your personal life is a whole different thing because you're constantly editing because you don't want people to see it this way or that way, but telling the truth. But when you write and you write for a purpose, like I wanted young people who wrote my book to really how could I say, from my mistakes, from the things that I did that I, that I hope they would not do, I try to give them nuggets of information that would be, I call it edutainment, that would give them information that would be helpful. And that's the hard part to writing about your personal life, you know, because it makes you vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I finally got the courage to do it. And so in my recent, I have two books coming out, my poetry book, uh, Invisible Man, and then my illustrated book, um, it's an animated book called The Journey. Um, also launched my own network called uh, Unite. Uh, and I, I, I just think that, you know, we're not gonna change the world, but whatever we can do to make things better for our kids that are coming. I mean, you turn the news on, man, we hear it's bad news and it divides us mm -hmm. by race, by culture, by gender, uh, the COVID, uh, it's like, and this division does not, I mean, what are we leaving our children? We should leave them some hope, right? Mm -hmm. And only by coming together are we gonna give them hope. So that's why they, the, the network's called Unite, and it's an attempt to bring people together through programming I'm creating, and. So I have some good people working with me and we'll see what happens. Yeah, you actually anticipated my next set of questions because I wanted to talk about Duke Media Entertainment and the Duke Media Foundation because there you are giving back to the worldwide community. And so, yeah, with the Unite Network, from what I understand, from what I was reading about it, it's going to be a way of sharing inspirational stories that are also entertaining. And so I was wondering, Exactly how is that going to work? How will people connect with the network? Well, um, what will, what we have a specific purpose, um, and that is to uh, present programming that talks about the good that's happening in this world. Uh, good organizations, corporations, good people, individuals. That I, I, one of my favorite programs on TV is CNN Heroes. Seeing and Heroes goes around the world and finds people that are doing great things, not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And so I, I, I really think that we have an obligation, a responsibility to leave our children something better than what we have. 
it is hope. And by coming together, we can do it. But by division, we cannot. So that's the purpose of the network, Y-O-U-N-I-T-E. And uh, we are doing our best just to make a difference, you know. And we have programs that are about music and people have successful musicians and what do they face and how they overcome those things. We have great actors like Anthony Anderson, Cedric the Entertainer, um, all kinds of people that talk about what they faced and they give nuggets of information to young people that are coming into the business to understand how the business functions and what you're gonna have to know. You know, so we're doing a, a number of those things. Does that make any sense? Yeah, will that be on a website or will there be an app or how will people access this content? We're gonna have our own site, our own network online. And we're gonna market it through, you know, TikTok, through, you know, all kinds of platforms to, to drive them to our network. And, um, you know, we're just gonna see how it goes. It, the, um, there'll be a, the face of the platform will be up uh, the 10th of June. And then the first week of July, the, the, the uh, soft launch of the network will be up. And then on Thanksgiving, the full network will be up. We're doing it in stages. I'll put a link up in our show notes so that people can just click on that and go there directly from here. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. But yeah, and so you also run the Duke Media Foundation. I have two questions. One is, where do you find the time? And second is, I think you kind of answered it, but a little bit, but you know, why do you feel like this is a really important thing? It's a, you know, give back by helping kids access media and literacy tools that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. I luckily have four people, Tizzy Green, Carl Gilliard, Linda Miles, uh, and, you know, others that are helping me with this network, with, with my foundation. Um, it is, we teach two things basically. Uh, we teach young people, high school students, um, the transition from film and television into media. I mean, what does that mean in terms of the jobs of the future? Um, you know, when I first came into this business, I say to everybody, I mean, when I was coming into the business, there was no internet. There was no social media. And I thought I was the hippest person in the world because I had me a cell phone. You know how big it was? Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember those? Yeah, I've seen them, yes. And I had to carry a box around with it? Mm-hmm. That was our cell phone. And now it's this big. In those days, it's this big. And so we teach them that how things have changed and what are the jobs of the future and not only in front of the camera, but behind the camera. And, and we teach them directing, acting, writing, um, you know, editing, all of that in terms of just basic elements of storytelling with film. And we teach them new media concepts also. So, uh, and then we teach financial literacy. I don't know if you know this or not, but you know, there are people who make a hundred million dollars or more and go broke. Yeah. How, how do you, how do you make a hundred million dollars and go broke? Because people teach you how to spend money, but not how to use money. 
and we teach them what is the what is what is the Federal Reserve? What is the FDIC? What is the stock market? What are bonds? What are you know uh, you know what is saving? What is debt? What is compound interest? What is investment? You know and the distinction between spending a dollar and using a dollar. Yeah, the things I never got taught when I was in school. I wish I, if I was taught those things, man, when I was a young person, I never would have made the mistakes I've made with my money that I make. But now I know more. But, you know, it's like, it's you learn, you know what I'm saying? And yeah. so we try to teach them at a young age. And uh, Karen A. Clark, who is a great, great banker, uh, leads our financial literacy, uh, literacy division and uh, teaches a lot of insightful things to the kids and their parents, you know, because they don't know what a banker really is. They just go to the bank and cash a check or go to a window or whatever. Mm -hmm. But what is a banker? What is a bank? And that is changing. Do you remember the days you go in a bank when there were like nine teller windows mm -hmm. and there were human beings behind each window? Yep. Now you go into a bank there are five robots and three or four tellers. We're moving in a certain direction, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting world we're living in. Yeah, well, that's really good that you're helping people live in those changing times and understand you know, what that means. Yes, we're trying our best, we really are. They can go to dukemediafoundation.org dukemediafoundation.org to check it out. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Thank you. No problem. Now I'd like to talk about a couple of different things because this show we focus mostly on science fiction and fantasy. And the first role that I remember seeing you in was as Mac on Predator. Yes. And I wonder when it's a movie like that, you know it's going to be something where it's going to be a slow burn of people being picked off one at a time. As an actor, do you grab the script and start flipping through to see like, hey, which order am I killed in? Am I like, you know, and then is that bragging rights for everybody else? Like, ah, oh, you died before me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you definitely read the whole script, but you read the part where you're going to die too. And you hope that you don't, but forget about right. it. And, uh, and the thing was, is that it was a brotherhood in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. We went down to Palenque also, but man, we were trained by Navy SEALs, how to crawl on our bellies and how to carry the guns and how to shoot the guns and you know, how to walk and move. And it was like a training session. And we got through it and we all appreciated it because we all had to stick with it. Uh, the second thing that brought us together were the facts that we were in the jungle. Mm. Uh, and we had to drive up like 45 minutes to a set, to the set. And uh, during the lunch times, the uh, caterer put uh, netting around the lunch set, but uh, there were bugs in our food the first week. And we said, take this crap back. We're not eating it. He said, uh, he said, guys, we're in the jungle. I'm just telling you, I'm doing the best I can with the food. If there are bugs in it, you know, I don't know what to do to tell you we're doing our best to keep them out. Uh, by the second week, the bugs were called protein because there was no more food to eat. Mm -hmm. And you picked as many bugs out as you could, but you didn't get them all. But 
the conditions under which we worked made us brothers because we all experienced the same thing. Uh, coral snakes can kill you with one bite. We used to be crawling on our bellies in the jungle. A coral snake would just move across your nook in front of your face. It, it was, it was, it was, uh, it, it bonded us, put it that way. You know, as I say in all, the, all my interviews, you know, the, the first, the, the, the predator you all saw was not the first predator, you know that, right? Uh, no, I didn't know that. Oh, really? The first predator was a much smaller beast. Uh, and uh, they, they used to fly the actor through trees on wires. And he had his felt suit on because they were going to superimpose the special effects of the suit in post-production. And in the, the temperature was like 100 and more degrees in Puerto Huerta during the summer. I'm talking about hot. Mm. Uh, and they had him in this felt suit. And he passed out twice and fell to the ground. And the producer calls over and says, you pass out one more time, I'll fire you. The guy says, I'm not passing out on, on purpose, I'm dehydrated. And the producer says, I understand that, but you're costing me time and money. We're under a schedule and a budget. Don't pass out again. So the guy drank as much water as he could, and two weeks later, he passed out again. The producer goes over to him and says, you're fired. That guy was Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> His first job as an actor in America. Well, I guess it didn't uh, negatively affect his career any. No, he did well. <laughs> wow. So yeah, when you're under that much heat and you're out in the jungle, does that help you act? Because then you're feeling what your character is feeling? Or is that something where it's just hard to suffer through and just get the lines out because the weather is so bad? It does both. You suffer through it, but at the same time, the conditions that are described in the script, you're under those conditions. So it's not hard to relate to those if you're living through them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so it was, it was both. Okay. I could talk to you about roles that you've been in for a long time, but unfortunately we got to move along. I do want to talk about Agent Odell because that is such an interesting role. My friends and I, we've discussed on the show, Black Lightning, and, and you know, you, you come up frequently <laughs> uh -huh. as we talk about the show. So one of the things that I've noticed about Agent Odell, because I mean, you're, you're a tall guy. You're, you're six, four, I believe. And, uh, six but when, yeah, six, four and a half. I'm, I'm sorry. And Agent Odell, though, when you watch the show, he does not seem to be as tall as you actually are. It seems almost like he projects a shortness of stature, a sort of unassumingness to him. And I was wondering, is, is that a deliberate thing or am I just getting something out of the TV that wasn't intended to be there? You know, um, I, I learned a lot from the, 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 the series Dexter that was on mm -hmm. HBO. Mm -hmm. I always felt guilty because I loved the, the main character, Dexter. But I always felt guilty because he was a serial killer. But the reason you liked him was because he was killing people worse than him. But you felt guilty about rooting for a serial killer. Right. Um, my, character, my character is pretty ruthless, but he's just doing his job. And for, for him, he's just doing his job. Now he's gonna be judged because the jobs he's doing, sometimes he's violent, uh, sometimes he's aggressive and confrontational, but as a basic person, he's a humble, in his mind, a humble worker that's saving his nation. Mm. And so I try to bring forth his humility, 
But at the same time, he's ruthless. But if he's, he's dealing with some ruthless people, so he has to bring that to the table too. So that's, I'm trying to co combine those two elements. Sure, yeah. I mean, one of the things that my friend said when I told him that I was going to talk to you was he said, how is it that he's such a quiet guy and yet I'm so intimidated by him? <laughs> so that's the funny thing is that, like you say, he, he is sort of a quiet, kind character, unassuming, but then also he's very intimidating. Yes. yes. He loves you, but he will kill you. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what drew you to the character? Uh, well, you know, um, I really liked the fact that he was not just a one-layered human being. You know, he has feelings. He really cares about his nation and people who threaten what it could be uh, through their own decisions of taking over government, of doing all these kind of, in their minds, they're doing good things. But there's a price for that that is being paid for them doing those things. And a lot of people and institutions and structures that I know are being destroyed because of them. And they cannot prove. It's like I lived through the 60s, okay? And we had, you know, we, we were great at talking about how horrible things were, right? But we hadn't, to be honest, we, we had no real plan to replace it except Gumbaya. And, you know, kumbaya is okay, but uh, how do kids continue to eat? How do we run our systems? How do we, if you, okay, it's one thing to get rid of everybody, right? Let's get rid of all the bad guys. What are you going to replace them with? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, that, and that's how I look at the young people in the episodes because I understand their passion. But I don't see a real plan that's going to do anything except destroy what already exists. And that's not a plan. Make any sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's really interesting. So when you took the job, did you know that it was going to grow into what it was in the third season? Or was it something that after you had been there and they saw how well the character was working, they sort of increased the role for Agent Odell? They, once they saw what the character was, they increased the role, I think. What was the environment like on Black Lightning? Oh, great. Ah, uh, Scott. Uh, Salima Keel, um, The actors. It was a family. It really was, you know, because whew, the hours were, I mean, we worked to one o'clock in the morning sometimes or later. You know, we work out side midnight and mosquitoes are biting you and all your individualism goes away and you're just you said can you hand me the mosquito spray and you know it's like you're under the same conditions and it's it, it, and and it was something that was wonderful because the characters were so layered you know they had good good things about them and bad things about them and it, it made you connect to yourself because all of us have those elements. We all have the positive side and we all have a negative side. And so it's about 
the balancing of those things, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And in fact, you anticipated my next question again, because I was going to ask you why you think Black Lightning is as powerful a show as it is. And I think you've kind of nailed that there about the layers on the characters. Mm -hmm. And so Black Lightning is a character that's been around since the 1970s in comics. Why do you think it is that we're still telling stories about Black Lightning in the 2020s? Well, he's one of the first uh, Black superheroes, right? And it's like, that's, that needs to be seen. You know, we need to we see our men in those positive roles and directions of not only their families, but there's, it goes beyond their personal. They're talking about saving the nation, their community, their neighborhood. And Black men have been doing that for a long time, but it's ne- that story's never told. So as a superhero doing that, it's, a, it's an attractive thing to me. The other thing I loved about this show is that it showed, even though it's an action, drama, superhero, there was a nuclear black family. And, and they, weren't, they weren't comedians. It wasn't about comedy. It was about the issues that every family faces with kids and challenging issues that go on every single day and families. And to see that and experience it was something I loved because you don't see it enough in terms of black families on TV. So those things attracted me to it. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with that because here I am a father and I'm watching the Pierce family on Black Lightning. It's one of the reasons why I really love the show, because I can empathize so much with Jefferson Pierce as a father. And even though his daughters yes. are a little bit older than my daughters, I also have two daughters. And it's kind of like I can see the discussions around the dinner table and things like that. And I'm like, I feel this, you know, I mean, like, I understand what's going on with this family. And, and I like that because that's an element you don't see a lot in action superhero kind of media. And so that in itself was also uh, really cool and really different. So the painkiller episode of this latest season of Black Lightning came out a few weeks ago. And of course, the twist at the end was that Agent Odell was behind what had happened in that episode. And so I'm just kind of curious, because obviously the painkiller series did not get picked up. But do you have any insight or knowledge of what would have happened if that had gone to series? I think you would have seen... Um, inside of his soul because in the Black Lightning he killed his mother because he was under the influence of you know but the thing is is that his spirit, his soul, his heart would have been revealed more too and that's what, that's what so like, like again like Dexter, I mean painkiller killed people so he's called painkiller he's putting people out of their pain uh but he also is human and showing his human side, that's always, and that's one of the most difficult things about filmmaking. How do you hook the audience emotionally into characters? You know, it's like, you see a lot of action movies, right? Mm-hmm. Car chases, explosions, gunfights, fist fights, and everything else. But do you really care about anybody that dies? <laughs> a lot of films you don't. And to, to, to hook people in, it's like, you know, it's, 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 it's not easy to do, but it's worth to try. It's a great book, you know, that, that, a great book that Steven Spielberg goes by and a lot of other people go by and I go by, by Joseph Campbell called Hero with a Thousand Faces. And it shows you 
in storytelling how to tell a story to in no matter what it could be action it could be romance whatever it is how do you get the audience to care about the the, the protagonist and it's an incredible book hero with a thousand faces joseph Campbell. So, um, of course, Agent Odell isn't your last role because you're coming back to screens everywhere on HBO Max with the movie No Sudden Move. Yes. And so I'm curious, what is your short pitch for the movie for everybody listening to this? Why should they tune into that on HBO Max? It's a movie of mystery that happens in 1954 about a very complex issue. And I don't want to give it away, but the car industry... But behind all of that, there are these gangsters from different gangster tribes who interweave and are in conflict. Uh, but at the same time, they're serving a purpose because if they get their part of it, they're going to get something from the car dealerships, blah, blah, blah. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very, like most of Steven's films, he's a brilliant director, but also crafter of story. So he always stays ahead of you. You know, the movie is, you never quite, you never get ahead of him. You don't know what's going to happen next. And he engages you emotionally in terms of caring about the people that are in the film, the main characters. So it, it, it's, um, it's again, you know, it's one of his, another one of his films that tells the human story, but through interesting eyes. Yeah, I watched the trailer and I see you there. You've got this, uh, you're playing the OG, literally. And you've got That's this right. swagger. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to be enjoying yourself quite a bit uh, making the movie. So did you have a good time? We had a great time. We were in Detroit shooting, man. Um, Matt Damon, you know, Don Cheadle, the Tori. I mean, the, 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 it was like a, a family. And... Um, and, and we had a great time. You know, Don Cheadle comes off serious in his roles, but he's one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life off, off screen. Uh, great heart, humorous, Matt Damon, humble. So there was like, you know, working with, how can I say, non-ego driving actors is always a pleasure. They cared about the roles. They cared about the film. They loved working with Steven and the other actors. And you felt that on screen you know, when you work with them. So it was great. Okay, yeah. And were you making that under quarantine conditions? Man, my brother, there's quarantine, then there's quarantine. But you were tested two or three times a day. It wasn't like you just come and take your temperature. No, 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 no. You're about to do a scene, keep that mask on. And you, and you just keep social distancing. When you do the scene, you take the mask off, but every crew member and every other cast member as that's not in that scene has their masks on. And when you finish the scene, you go back and put your mask on with social distancing and you're tested again. Oh, wow. So, no, man, it's no joke. Yeah, I wondered if maybe they put you all like in a bubble or something so that you all could associate with each other without the masks, but you all had to maintain your social distancing and masks between scenes. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you couldn't just leave the set and come back and blah, blah, without being tested. You couldn't do that. Wow. Because, I mean, you know, it's, it's like, 
everybody was totally paranoid, man. Mm-hmm. And, and they didn't want to get the disease. They wanted to do their job. But at the same time, you know, just a little cough or sneeze or touching the surface of something. or It's like you felt totally vulnerable. Like, you know, how do you, how do you, and even today, you know, you feel like you're on your own because, you know, Fauci will say one thing, right? Then the CDC will say something else. Then another doctor will say something else. How do you know what to, to make, you know what I'm saying? It's like you feel like you're on your own with it. Yeah, no, I mean, you just have to use your best judgment based on everything that you're seeing and hearing. And that's not a very comfortable place when there's no certainty. It's just, this is your best judgment. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, so, but, you know, in it all, you know, the business is slowly coming back. Um, Yes, with all the COVID testing and quarantines, but it's coming back. And, um, Thank God, you know, we, I, I hope and pray soon that the major movie theaters will come back. Not just a third of, but one of my favorite things is going into a space with strangers and having a common experience and darkness. There's something about that laughter and crying and, you know, it's like and thinking. There's something about that that I miss. I really, really do. Yeah. No, I agree with you there. Just because you, you get put the thought in my head, I know we have to go because time's uh, running out here, but uh, what kind of movies do you like to watch? Well, I, I, li- I like all different kinds of movies, but some of my favorite are innovative, you know. Um, my Citizen Kane, um, Once Upon a Time in America, it's a Wonderful Life. Um, oh, one of my favorites, Run, Lola, Run. You ever see Run, Lola, Run? I have not. Oh, my God. You, you, listen, in terms of an innovative experience, in terms of movie structure, I beg you to watch Run, Lola, Run. Okay. I'll check it out. It gives you a whole different way of looking at movies and how stories are told. It is, it is really brilliantly done. Um, so, I mean, I like some of the contemporary movies too, some of the contemporary directors. I think there's a lot of talent out there. Um, I just I just like different genres that are well done. The story is told well. You care about the characters, whether it's action adventure or a love story or whatever it is. You care about the people that you're watching. That makes perfect sense. And yeah, I will definitely check out that movie. Uh, Bill, thank you for coming on the 42 cast. And for everyone listening, No Sudden Move is coming July 1st to HBO Max. So check that out as well. And once again, Bill, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, my friend, thanks for having me. Great show and great questions. Much appreciated. Okay. Thank you very much. And that's it for our interview with Bill Duke. As Bill mentioned on the show, he has two books coming out, The Works of the Invisible Man and The Journey. Both of those will be available in July. We'll be putting links in the show notes to his autobiography that he has, as well as a link to the trailer for No Sudden Move, which hits HBO Max on July 1st, as well as a link to the Unite Network. So if you want to check out any of those things, Please go to the show notes and you'll be able to follow Bill on his pursuits as he continues to create content.
But now we want to know what you thought of the episode, and you can let us know in a variety of ways. One way is to email us at everything at 42cast.com. Another way is to go to our Facebook at facebook.com slash 42cast. Another way is to go to our website at 42cast.com and leave notes on this episode or any of the episodes that we've done of the show. You can also tweet to us at 42cast or catch us on Instagram at 42cast. You can also leave us reviews on Stitcher and Apple Podcasts. And with Apple Podcasts, your reviews really do help because the more reviews that we have, the more that Apple will promote the show in searches. And so we really appreciate it if you leave reviews. I also want to make sure and mention the ESO Network Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash ESO Network. It gives you access to early episodes of some podcasts. It gives you exclusive episodes of some podcasts. It also gives you access to an exclusive podcast that's unique to the ESO Network. It's a way of helping all of our shows stay going. So if you are able to help out, if you want to help out, please check that out. Look at the different tiers, see what you can contribute, and we appreciate it. I also want to mention my other two podcasts. The first one is Time Streams, which is where Juliet and I are going through all of Doctor Who from the beginning, discussing the episodes. You don't need to watch the shows with us if you just don't have access to them or you have a hard, difficult time with older television. We explain everything important that happens in the story in our discussion. So if you just want to listen to our banner, that's okay. But you definitely get more out of it if you're following along with us. The other show is Legendary Forces, which is still in production but will be out in July. Legendary Forces is where myself, Joe Heath, Juliet Vincent, Ashley Pauls, and Kareen Viktek are all watching Star Wars fictional media from the very beginning. That's right, from 1976 with the Star Wars novelization that came out before the movie. We're reviewing each thing that we either read or watch. We're letting you know how good it is within just the context of a story. Also how it contributes to the overall Star Wars narrative. And we basically let you know if it's worth checking out now. So... If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, check that out as well. In con news, I will be attending Dragon Con virtually, but not in person. I've already recorded a panel on uh, a as a tribute to Sean Connery. I've recorded another panel on the Falcon and the Winter Soldier series from Marvel. I will also be recording a panel on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And the 42 cast has also been asked to contribute a panel on the 35th anniversary of Howard the Duck. And so that will be on as part of the American Sci-Fi Classics track, but on their YouTube channel, not on the Dragon Con channel, but it will be put on YouTube during Dragon Con. So it's kind of counted as part of the Dragon Con virtual content. I don't know if there are any other panels that I'll get on before the end. I know that the different tracks are being told by mid-July to have all of this finished up. And so there's probably not too much of a chance, but I will let you know. I'm also going to attend Chicago TARDIS this year. That's in the end of November, so there's still more time for vaccines to get distributed and for things to get better. Either way, I'm sure there'll still be a lot of precautions, a lot of social distancing, etc. But my tickets from last year rolled over to this year, so we'll be going and hopefully that'll be, well, you know, hopefully that'll be safe and everything. But as long as nothing changes, we'll be going in person to Chicago TARDIS. Hopefully things will be a lot better by then. But I will definitely let you know what my schedule is once I know it. 
All right, but that's a wrap for this week. Join us back next week when Finn Jones will not be joining us. And until then, this is Nathan signing off. You have been listening to the 42 cast copyright 2021. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42 cast.com. Theme music is sharper swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. The 42 cast is a proud member of the ESO network. Hello everyone, Dr. Geek here with a shout out to all the scientists who worked tirelessly to bring a COVID-19 vaccine into reality. <laughs> Let's face it, creating something of this magnitude is a miracle worthy of Dr. McCoy himself. And now, Dr. Geek needs you to do your part. Remember, each shot is one small step back to normal, one giant leap to putting the pandemic behind us. We can do this. For more information, visit vaccines.gov to find your nearest provider. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping at the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.